0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Please be seated. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What thing? Well, to answer that, we need to start with last week's story. King David has secured his power and his leadership. He has united the tribes of Israel into one kingdom. He has subdued most of the nations around him. He's now confident enough to delegate the leadership of the army to one of his generals. And so he remains in Jerusalem, enjoying the privilege of his power by staying home while his army goes out to war. Late one afternoon, as he stands on his palace roof, watching the sunset, on the building and lands over which he is the undisputed master. He sees her bathing, and she is beautiful. He sends someone to find out who she is, and they report that she is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, who is off fighting David's war. David doesn't skip a beat. Get her for me, he orders, and they do is brought to David, he <clears throat> spends a little time with her, and then he sends her home, probably forgetting all about her. That is, until she sends word that she is pregnant. It's the first indication that David's control over things is not as absolute as he thought. So he does what every political leader does when a scandal threatens their power. He organizes a cover-up. Thinking quickly, he summons Uriah home from the front, gets an update from him, and then sends him home to his wife. But Uriah shows far more faithfulness and virtue than David. He refuses to indulge in the comfort of his wife while his comrades are on the battlefield fighting for the God of Israel. David tries getting Uriah drunk, but even then, his commitment holds. Given Uriah's stubborn righteousness, David decides he has only one card left to play. He sends a sealed message to his general, delivered by Uriah's own hand, ordering that Uriah be killed in combat. When he's later told of the death of Uriah, as well as other men, David's response is Do not let this thing trouble you. These things happen. After Bathsheba finishes her time of mourning, David marries her. She has their child, and David believes that he has gotten away with all of it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oops. It appears that David forgot that there was one with greater power and territory than he. This thing might not have troubled David, but it troubled God. God has seen it all and he is not happy. He sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. But this isn't Nathan's first prophetic rodeo. He knows that David, if threatened, could order Nathan's death death as easily as he had ordered Uriah's. He knows that when challenged directly, our instinct is to jump to rationalizations and justifications, sparing no effort to defend ourselves. And so, just as Jesus would so often do in his ministry, Nathan uses a parable to create a space where David might see things in a new way. He tells them the story of a rich man who has a great flock of sheep, and a poor man who has one sweet lamb, a family pet, really. When a traveler came to the rich man, he didn't want to use one of his flock to feed the visitor, so he took the poor man's only lamb, killed it, and fed it to his guest. Hearing this story, David is outraged by the injustice of it. And like a man accustomed to pronouncing judgment, he says, this man should die. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are the man. And then Nathan begins speaking for God, I gave you everything. I made you king over all of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in my sight? You killed Jeriah by the sword of the Ammonites, and you have taken his wife for yourself. Know now that I will raise up trouble in your house, and the sword will never depart from it. I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor. And though you did this thing in secret, I'm going to do it where everyone can see. David hears Nathan read off this litany of evil acts and the serious consequences they will bring, and his response is, I have sinned against the Lord. The story of David and Nathan reminds us of several truths. First. We don't get to establish what is right and wrong, God does. David lost touch with who he was. He began to believe his own press. He thought he was above the rules that others were expected to live by. He forgot all that God had done for him. He began to think that the power and wealth and territory that he held were from his own abilities and not a gracious gift from God. He forgot he was to use these gifts for the good of his people and instead came to a place where he used them for his own gratification. He began to think that all the people and things around him were merely pawns to be used for his entertainment. Both David and the rich man in the parable take what they want but do not need from someone who has no power to refuse them. David was anointed to be the shepherd of Israel, but he has become a predator among the sheep. In this confrontation, David now sees how far he has strayed from God. Our sin is revealed when our stories are exposed by God's more truthful story. Second, we are reminded that we all need Nathan's. Nathan doesn't confront David head on by saying, God knows you slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, and you're in big trouble. Instead, he frames the truth in a way that David can hear it, engage it, and respond to it. Nathan's example invites us to examine how we speak hard truths to those who are closest to us. I mean, there are options between avoidance and direct judgment. And do we have Nathans in our lives? Do we have people who are honest with us when we're out of line, friends who know us well enough to speak up when we're making a mistake, mentors not afraid to put things into perspective when we need it most? It takes courage to risk a relationship by telling us something that we need to hear. Nathan's remind us that our sins are still there, even when we pretend they're not. And the longer we ignore our sins, the more damage they do to us because as long as we ignore our sins, they hold power over us and they work to keep us separated from God and one another. Which brings us finally to our need to recognize and name our sin. What contributed to David's spiral away from God was that he thought no one knew about the wrong that he had done. It was a secret. If nobody knew about it, then it was as if it had never happened. Anonymity breeds self-serving behavior. Open any newspaper, watch any newscast, and you will see examples of people behaving badly because they thought no one was looking. Whether it is trolling and cyberbullying, or using elected office for personal gain, or trying to pick up minors online, or using power and position to harass those whose livelihood is held in your hands, there is no end to the trouble people get into if they don't think they'll get caught. But we are always before God. Even when our actions are hidden from others, they are never hidden from God. And we tell ourselves that we're good people. God has much bigger sin fish to fry than us, but we are sinners. And so we, we must regularly hold up our lives to God's desire for our lives and challenge ourselves to see where we've fallen short. It's why we have a confession of sin in the worship service each week. It reminds us of our regular need for grace and forgiveness. That silence that we keep before we recite our confession is the space in which each of us is to name our sin before God. I have sinned against the Lord. There are no denials, no lies, no tortured half-truths, no justifications, no show of indignation. To his credit, David does not turn away from the troubling truth about himself. He has the courage to say, yes, I am the man. David will still deal with the consequences of his sin, and they are serious. But God's desire is not to condemn us when we sin, but to transform us by bringing us to repentance. Like David, we will fall short of God's intention. We will get it wrong. But the good news is that while God challenges us to acknowledge the truth of our sin, He also promises the grace of His forgiveness. Whether we see it ourselves, or need the Nathans in our lives to help us see it, let us have the courage to name our sin in the assurance that we will know God's forgiveness. Amen.